Hello and welcome to another Imagining Freedom podcast, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. Coronavirus seems to be retracting from the news headlines a bit, although there have been some reports that Iran is experiencing a second wave of the virus. On Monday, The Guardian reported that there had been 3,000 new cases in 24 hours and 81 deaths in the same period. I'm going to watch this situation because the politicians and media have been building a lot of fear over a possible second wave of the disease. Certainly, Iran's fatality rate is a lot lower than the UK's. Iran has had 96 deaths per million, compared with the UK's 585. Iran's neighbours have had significantly lower numbers of deaths per million. The closest neighbour is Turkey, with 55, and then Azerbaijan, Pakistan and Afghanistan, all of whom have had 8 deaths per million, and Iraq, which has had 6. Turkmenistan is Iran's other neighbour, but it's a secretive state that claims not to have had any cases of COVID-19 at all, and those claims are not to be trusted. The other country that the mainstream media have been focusing on is Sweden, as its death rates have been apparently surging, sadly. Commentators are saying that country's no-lockdown policy has failed. Wired had an article with the headline, Sweden's coronavirus experiment has well and truly failed. Of course, the situation is constantly changing, but Sweden's number of deaths per million is still significantly lower than the UK's. Sweden has 450 deaths per million, compared to the UK's 585 deaths per million. So it might be premature to say that Sweden's no-lockdown policy has failed. I want to think critically about this issue. I've always been sceptical about the severity of COVID-19, mainly because the media seemed to be trying so hard to ramp up the fear. The disease seemed to be much more dangerous in the elderly and people with weak immune systems. And for that reason, I thought that the ideas proposed by Dr David L. Katz seemed sensible, of shielding and protecting the vulnerable while allowing the the younger and healthier people to carry on with their business and build up herd immunity. I am fundamentally opposed to the very idea of lockdown and the reason that I've complied with it is not so much because the government has told me to, but because it was clearly the will of the majority, overwhelmingly so in Scotland. I think lockdown should only be even considered as a last resort, a means of dealing with an uncontrollable disease with a very high fatality rate. COVID-19 is very contagious, but it doesn't have a very high fatality rate. So, has Sweden's policy failed? Its weekly fatality rate has recently been reported as the highest in the world, and apparently testing shows that the, the Swedish population has not built up herd immunity, which doesn't actually make sense to me. Either they've been infecting each other, or they haven't. So I really don't understand that. Are people getting infected and then the infection is dying out? I do have a theory about why, why Sweden's death rates are higher than that of its neighbours, and it is just a theory. I'll discuss it later on. But I think it's too early to say whether any country has failed according to the numbers of deaths. It's better to look at general trends of what seems to work and what doesn't. And in my opinion, lockdown does not save lives. It was brought in, we were told, to prevent the, the NHS from being overwhelmed. And the NHS has definitely not been overwhelmed. With hindsight, there are many things that most countries could have done differently. But forcing people to sit at home and do nothing productive, putting people under an effective house arrest is, in my opinion, an extremely serious measure that has made me question the very nature of democracy. 
I made a video last week, which is available on my website, that showed that Sweden had a fatality rate at least seven times as high as its neighbour Finland. But Finland also had no lockdown. Finland did take strict emergency measures, closing schools, prohibiting meetings of more than 10 people and imposing travel restrictions in certain areas. But it doesn't seem that people in Finland had their civil liberties removed in the way that they have been in the UK. And Finland is considered a coronavirus success story, as is Portugal, which also had no lockdown, although Portugal also took emergency measures and it did a lot of testing. In April, Finland lifted roadblocks that had been placed around its capital, Helsinki. And according to a report from Reuters, its Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, said that the Finnish government no longer had legal grounds to continue the policy as it was considered an extreme measure to restrict people's freedom of movement so strictly. This seems completely sensible to me. Like Portugal, Finland took emergency steps, but it treated their population like adults, advising them to, to adhere to social distancing while at the same time upholding their liber- liberties and civil rights. I have found this open-ended house arrest that we've been put under in the UK much more terrifying than the prospect of catching COVID-19. I know that I'm completely different from most of my friends in this, and I feel pretty sad to have this disconnect, but it's just the way I feel. According to Wired magazine, Sweden's expert agencies are kept separate from the government, and this means that scientific issues don't become politicised. On the surface, that sounds like a really good thing. But does it mean that the scientists themselves could be subject to conflicts of interest? There don't seem to be any obvious signs of that in the case of Sweden, from what I can see. I've no evidence that their scientists have made decisions that could allow them to reap profits. On the other hand, there are very clear conflicts of interest regarding the World Health Organization. Its biggest donors are private interests, many of them private profit-making pharmaceutical companies. And yet, the World Health Organization is highly influential in directing policy in many countries, including the UK. How can that be democratic? It could never be said that the science has settled on COVID-19. It's a new disease and we still have a lot to learn about it. Yet, there are legions of scientists with solid credentials whose voices have been muzzled by the mainstream media and whose interviews on YouTube have been deleted. A few weeks ago, YouTube's CEO publicly announced that the video sharing platform would delete anything that conflicted with World Health Organization recommendations. So in that way, our fate is in their hands. Our lives, our health and our livelihoods are being directed by a privately funded organization which seems to hold sway over our government in the UK and over our publicly funded broadcasting service. I think this is having very serious impacts on people's lives. In a discussion on misinformation in April, YouTube's CEO, Susan Wojcicki, said to CNN, So people saying, take vitamin C, take turmeric, we'll cure you, those are the examples of things that would be a violation of our policy. Anything that would go against World Health Organization recommendations would be a violation of our policy. So that would explain why interviews with naturopaths like Dr David Brownstein have been deleted, along with interviews with epidemiology experts like Professor Knut Witkowski. What seems to link many of these banned doctors and and scientists is that they are advocating natural treatments that are inexpensive. 
the kind of treatments that the World Health Organization recommends are generally very expensive, highly regulated and highly profitable to its backers. This has to be an extortion racket. And it's a racket that has enormous implications for the health, never mind the wealth, of millions of people. There's going to be a lot of pressure on people to get the COVID-19 vaccine that scientists are rushing out. Even if it's not made mandatory, I think life will be made very difficult for those who choose not to have it. UK taxpayers will be paying for the vaccine, which we've been told will be very expensive and which is likely to net big profits for some of the people and companies that fund the World Health Organization, the WHO, the very body that has been recommending this course of action. Or maybe I'm judging them too harshly. Last Tuesday, The Guardian ran an opinion piece saying that the WHO had launched an initiative to encourage countries to share research for COVID-19 treatments globally and to produce any coronavirus medicines patent-free. The article mentioned research into drugs that had cost $5 per course to produce, being sold for more than $18,000 per course. I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. The WHO's Solidarity Call to Action initiative is operating in partnership with the government of Costa Rica. And the WHO's website says that together with its co-sponsors, they are calling to action the global community to voluntarily share knowledge, intellectual property and data necessary for COVID-19. Many of the World Health Organization's co-sponsors are big pharmaceutical companies like GlaxoSmithKline and the French pharmaceutical giant Sanofi which are working together to produce a vaccine for COVID-19. It'll be interesting to see whether they put their money where their mouths are and share the global patents for any COVID-19 treatments in accordance with the WHO's stated wishes. GlaxoSmithKline's CEO, Emma Walmsley, was appointed to the board of Microsoft last year, which is pretty significant as Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, is the biggest funder of the World Health Organization. It really does sound like a cosy club, And I think the time has come for these very powerful people to show proof that this is not all about making big profits from a disease whose threat has been massively inflated by the national press, including the taxpayer-funded national broadcasting company. As I speak, Bill Gates is participating in the Global Vaccine Summit 2020, which is a fundraising initiative organised by Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance. The summit is being hosted virtually from London by the UK government. I've been thinking for a long time, even before the United States withdrew funding from the World Health Organization, making Bill Gates its biggest donor, that no one should be allowed to profit from this disease, which has caused so much misery and enormous changes to our way of life, changes which are likely to have massive economic consequences. No one should be allowed to profit from this. So back to my thoughts on whether Sweden's no lockdown policy is really the reason for its fatality rate being significantly higher than that of its neighbours. As I was skimming through the articles that were making this claim, I noticed a mention of Sweden's immigrant community, which has been particularly hard hit by this disease. Sweden has a higher proportion of immigrants from outside Europe than its neighbours, and most of them live in Stockholm, the capital city, which is where most of the country's COVID-19 cases and deaths have been concentrated. There's an interesting article on this issue on the Foreign Policy website, which suggests that the immigrants' language and cultural differences might be the reason why they are not following the government's social distancing advice and are therefore getting sick. I'll put the link in the show notes. 
But I think there's a potentially hugely important factor staring us in the face here. And that is the impact of low levels of vitamin D on COVID-19. I actually made a video about the possible link between vitamin D and COVID-19 a couple of weeks ago after I'd read statistics saying that black people, and that's in the UK, were four times as likely to die from COVID-19 than white people. This made me quite concerned about my relatives in the Bahamas, where 85% of the population is of African ethnicity. And there are many people with comorbidities, including high rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Many of my relatives in the Bahamas are elderly and some of them have poor health. However, I found out that there were very few cases of COVID-19 in the Bahamas and there have only been 11 deaths from the disease there. Of course, that's 11 deaths too many. But in a population of 385,000, this is a very low fatality rate compared to other countries. And there's been no lockdown in the Bahamas, which, by the way, is a very hot and sunny country. But there have been regular curfews. I was pleased to learn that all of my relatives are well. And I also found out that there have been scientific studies looking into this issue of vitamin D and COVID-19. But these studies don't seem to have got the same amount of publicity as, for example, Sweden's no lockdown policy. Skin colour or pigmentation is caused by melanin, which protects the skin from the sun's rays. So dark skinned people don't absorb much of, as much of the sun's rays as people with lighter skin. That means that dark skinned people don't burn so easily. But it also means that in cooler, less sunny climates, dark skinned people don't get as much vitamin D. Their skin doesn't make as much vitamin D. That's why, as a dark-skinned person myself, I take very high-dose vitamin D supplements, 5,000 IU every day. And I've been doing that for years. I think it's dreadful that black people who live in northern climates are not made more aware of this, because vitamin D deficiency can have enormous health impacts. The best-known health impact from lack of vitamin D is rickets a bone disease which was really common in Victorian and Edwardian Britain when many people worked long hours in mills or factories without being exposed to sunlight. When I was a small child, I remember often seeing old ladies with bow legs that had been distorted due to rickets. And now rickets are starting to, to appear again in the UK. The NHS in Scotland has drawn a lot of attention to the dangers of vitamin D deficiency in recent years, partly because there's been a suspected link with multiple sclerosis, which is more common in northern latitudes. So even people with white skin can have problems from vitamin D deficiency. But people with dark skin living in cool climates have to be especially careful to monitor their vitamin D levels and take supplements if necessary. One way to increase your vitamin D levels naturally is to get out in the sunshine when it's there. Unfortunately, winter sunshine is not strong enough in the northern latitudes to be converted into to vitamin D by the skin. And that's why I always take supplements as well as getting outside a lot. The body can store vitamin D to a certain extent. So it makes, it, it makes sense to get outside as much as you can in sunny weather using sunscreen if your skin burns easily. Staying indoors seems particularly unhelpful in this respect, unless you're in a vulnerable group. In which case, if you have access to a private garden or balcony, it would make sense to make the most of that. The people who have been recently heading to the beaches or beauty spots in droves on sunny days, and who are often criticised in the press as COVIDiots, might actually be doing the best thing possible for their health. I think in the future, 
people will look back on this period and think, what the hell were doctors thinking of advising people to stay indoors to prevent disease? In the same way as we now think doctors in the old days were crazy to try and cure people by putting blood-sucking leeches on their skin. I don't think that vitamin D is one of the World Health Organization's recommended treatments for COVID-19. You can get vitamin D by going outside on a sunny day. Do you think that the WHO's wealthy pharmaceutical sponsors would approve of that? If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.